Lord God, you are unchanging. Uh, nothing surprises you. You've laid it out all from beginning to end. And Lord, we're in the middle, or maybe even towards the end of the story. Oh, Lord God, um, grant us patience, steadfastness, faithfulness as we wait for your glorious promises. Help us to be faithful now in what you've called us to do. Help us to be faithful proclaimers of your kingdom. Lord, help us as we come this morning to your word and to the parables that you gave to the crowds and to your disciples. Lord, please give us minds to understand. Um, give us wisdom. And Lord, help us to not merely understand the interpretation, but also help us to know how to act in light of, in light of your kingdom, in light of the nature of its coming. Um, Lord, help us to to act on it, Lord God. Um, pray that you would grant mercy um, to our community, um, to Hood River, to the Dalles, to the Gorge area, Lord, to rescue more people for yourself, to draw them to you, and Lord, that they might know you, that they might know joy and life everlasting. Lord, bless this time in your word this morning. Give me clarity, give us ears to hear, and hearts to obey. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew 13. And we're going to read the same text that we read last week, since we're still going through that, and that is Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 24 through 43, Matthew 13, 24 through 43, and when you find your place, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks, and so we honor His Word by standing as we read it. If you're not able to stand, we understand. We know you honor God's word as well. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, we are picking up uh, in the second part of what we started last week. Uh, We grouped together, and you can see it as we read, verses 24 through 43, because it begins with the parable of the tares or the darnel, and it ends with an explanation of the parable of the darnel. And so Matthew has created a sandwich. He created a sandwich with first giving the imagery of the parable, which we explored last week, the parable of the Darnell, and then he ended with the explanation. So everything in between somehow fits together. And so what we said is, well, let's understand these three parables, the parable of the Darnell, the parable of the mustard grain, and the parable of the leaven. If we under, uh, and, uh, well, let's, let's look at the imagery together, and that's what we did last week. We In verses 24 through 33, we heard the parables of the coming kingdom for the crowds. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the crowds uh, in those parables. He's speaking to the crowds in those parables, and those three parables go together. And what we will see this week when we go to the explanation is once you understand the parable of the Darnell, then you get to understand the other two parables as well. They go together. But intervening in between that, uh, the, the, those three parables and the explanation that we're going to get this week is another statement of Jesus about the purpose of the parables. And so we spent some time finishing up last week of understanding the purpose of the parables for the crowds. He's speaking these things to the crowds. We got the imagery of those three parables, uh, we, and now we have the, uh, we also looked at the understanding of the purpose of those parables. And Jesus took us back to Psalm 78, and Psalm 78, Asaph is talking about uh, the history of Israel, and he's saying, I'm going to speak to you in riddles, I'm going to speak to you in parables, and you're like, well, wait, this is just history, this is something everyone else knows, how is it a riddle? Well, the riddle was that Israel could know its history, it could hear its history, but unless it repented and believed in who God was and entrusted themselves to God in a true and heartfelt way, then that cycle of what Asaph portrays of unfaithfulness, of disobedience, would continue to perpetuate. And Jesus draws that connection with his own time and says, well, what I'm doing with the parables is telling history, like Asaph was telling history. It's telling future history of what the kingdom is going to be like. That's Remember that, that phrase, the kingdom of the heavens, is really the idea of the kingdom coming from the heavens, so I'm telling you in these parables what the, king, the coming of that kingdom is going to be like, especially now that Israel has rejected Jesus. And only if you repent, only if you repent and you move from the crowds. Remember, the crowds are kind of neutral, so to speak. They might be interested in Jesus so to, a little bit. They're interested in his miracles, but they haven't repented. And so Jesus has said, all right, you've rejected me. I'm rejecting you. You haven't repented By the end of chapter 12, it's too late. The door is closed on this generation of Israel. It hasn't, it's closed for the group by and large, but it hasn't closed for individuals. Individuals can still repent and move from the crowds to the disciples. 
We liken the parables to a, one, uh, a one-way mirror. If you're on one side of it, you can look in that one-way mirror and you can't see. That's one of the reasons Jesus spoke the parables. But if you repent, if you cross over into the other side, into the group of disciples, those who have repented, turned their allegiance from sin and self, entrusted themselves to Christ and are following him in obedience, then they can see. Jesus will explain, even as we will see today, the parables. And so Jesus said, the purpose I'm giving these parables, I am giving history, like Asaph gave history, and with those who have ears to hear, with those who repent, like even Asaph's generation should have repented, they can understand, they can understand what Jesus is saying. The parables both conceal and they reveal. If you don't have ears to listen, if you aren't repentant, if you aren't in the disciples, you're not going to understand them. But even if you are in the crowd, there's some... There's some Uh, disturbing imagery and things that if you think about and meditate and repent and by God's grace repent and entrust yourself to Jesus, then you can understand. And what we've done is last week we got the imagery of these parables and we understood the purpose of these parables for the crowds, but then this week, finishing up this section, we're going to understand the parables of the coming kingdom. Remember that language at the beginning of Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower, the language of hearing, but not only hearing, but understanding. So the crowds have heard, but only the disciples get to understand with the explanation of the parable. And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 36. Verse 36, then he left the crowd. So that's a significant marker because it just tells us that really everything that came prior to this, all the parables that came prior to this, they were for the crowds. Now you can remember that, that kind of parenthesis from verses 10 through 23, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, but that's just kind of a parenthesis. Um, All the parables that he spoke, those first four, were for the crowds. But now we get a decisive turn. We get a decisive turn where he leaves the crowds and he went into the house. Now, which house? It's the house that ends chapter 12 in Matthew and begins where he goes out from that house at the beginning of chapter 13 and he sits by the sea. Now he's going back from the seashore back into the house. Uh, Whose house is it? Could be Matthew's house, could be his house. It's a house that seems to be a base of operations for Jesus. He's probably in Capernaum. So he goes back into the house. So now he's just with his disciples. And his disciples came to him saying, explain, literally the idea is make clear, make it clear to us, the parable of the weeds of the field. And we said that that word weeds, it's not just like any old weed. This is the idea of a look-alike weed, darnel, which looks an awful lot like wheat, looks an awful lot like wheat, and that's a key part of the parable. And they asked, the disciples asked that to understand the parable of the, um, of the weeds or the darnel of the field. Now, why that one? Well, it could just be because that's the next in line. It could be that they asked about more explanations that aren't recorded for us. But as we'll see, if you do understand the parable of the Darnell, then you get to understand the parable of the mustard grain and the parable of the leaven as well. They're similar. And as we walk through the imagery of all three, there were similarities and differences in the imagery in all three. 
So then we jump back into it. Remember what a parable is, just before we go any farther. What's a parable? It's a comparison. That's really what the word basically means, is a comparison between real-world stuff and profound realities. The crowds are getting all the real-world imagery. Now, there's some disturbing aspects of it, but that would kind of provoke them a little bit. They're getting all the real-world imagery, but he hasn't given the explanation. He hasn't given the other side of the comparison, the correspondence, but now Jesus is, and he's going to do it for his disciples in accordance with what he said earlier in Matthew in 13, 10 through 23. Uh, to you, it has been granted. To the disciples, it has been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom coming from the heavens to earth. And notice what he does. In verse 37, he, he immediately goes into an explanation. No questions. The disciples ask, and in accordance with what he said, they get the answer. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So now what he's going to do in the next couple of verses is he's going to draw those correspondences for us. So we had all the imagery, but now what he's going to do, what Jesus is going to do is fill in the blank. He's going to give the other side of those correspondences. So he gives us a list to start with. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Remember that son of man language. Uh, that is imagery in the Old Testament talking about uh, a human being in general, even a weak human being. But once it comes to Daniel 7, the idea of the Son of Man is the idea of the exalted king who will reign over God's kingdom over the whole world, who is both a human and is divine. It is a, both a human individual. He's like a Son of Man, and he is divine. And Jesus is applying that to himself. And he's saying the one who goes into the, his field, remember the, the parable, so the fellow, the, the farmer goes into his field and he sows good seed. And Jesus is saying, well, that's the son of man, that's me. So already you can see some of the time frame that this parable encompasses. It at least encompasses part of what Jesus is doing in his ministry, isn't it? Uh, we, we understand that even in the parable of the sower, or the parable of the sower, the man went out and he sowed seed, but he had different results. And there was only a certain amount of them that were good. But in the parable of the Darnell, it's that he's sowing good seed. So kind of the imagery of uh, those who have responded to his message, uh, true repenters, that, that, that good seed crop, they've kind of become smushed together in this parable. And that's the seed that, that Jesus, in his ministry of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that's the seed that gets planted in the field. The field is the world. Now, notice that. That's important. Uh, the scope of Jesus' kingdom, the scope of God's kingdom, is the world. It has always been the world. God's plan from Genesis 1 was to have a chosen human king over uh, all creation. That was Adam initially, and then um, it eventually became David, a promise to David and his sons, and one of his sons would ultimately sit on the throne forever. But not only of Israel... Notice the field isn't Israel, it's the whole world. The scope of God's kingdom is the whole world. The field is the world. So the field is not Israel, nor, nor is it the church. Notice that. Jesus hasn't even begun to talk about the church. He won't officially until Matthew 16, and he'll develop it. Now he's setting the groundwork for a lot of this, but what's he talking about? He's talking about the world, the world, all of the world. The field is the world. Now, Jesus didn't only spend his time in Palestine, 
So what is he talking about? Well, what he's gonna, what's going to become clear is that his ministry and the citizens of the kingdom, the disciples, they start in Israel, but they're going to encompass the world by extension from his ministry that he's been doing so far. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now, that phrase, the sons of the kingdom, that's just, a, a, we've seen it before, actually. Uh, we actually saw it in Matthew 8, and there it referred to Jews as those who are by nature and by right the inheritors and have all the promises of the kingdom from the Old Testament. And yet here, Jesus used it in a way that basically refer to kingdom citizens. You can kind of think about it like that. Sons of the kingdom are kingdom citizens. Who's going to populate the kingdom? If you have a kingdom, you have to have a ruler, but you have to have a rule. You have to have citizenry. Uh, and he's talking about here are the citizens. And what is the citizen? Well, who are the citizens? The good seed. The good seed. So these are those who have responded in repentance and faith, and they are citizens of the kingdom. The weeds, or the darnel, is, are the sons of the evil one. So you remember the parable, the enemy comes by stealth and by night, and he sows right on top of the wheat seed, the good seed, with darnel, this lookalike seed that you can't tell the difference between wheat and it until it's, it's born its, its head of grain. And who are these? Well, these are the sons of the evil one. They're this, or another way to put it, they are citizens of Satan's kingdom. From the beginning and from the fall, really, from the, from the fall, we see that there's only two camps in the world. There are the citizens of God's kingdom, those who are submitted to him, who are aligned with him, and then there are citizens of the evil, uh, evil one's kingdom. And really, the, the, the Bible, and even Matthew, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, it's very clear that as right now, in this age, the world and its world systems are under the influence and dominion of Satan. There are pockets of resistance. There are, Jesus has come in and he's bound Satan in a, in a measure, but he talks about in the parable, the Darnell, the lookalike plants are the sons of the evil one. They're the citizens, the human citizens of Satan's reign. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The devil tried to ruin the crop, the message. The harvest is the end of the age, which was common imagery. Even John the Baptist used that in Matthew 3 of the harvest. That's a common imagery for judgment. And this idea of the end of the age, we talked about that where um, it, the New Testament talks about this difference between the ages. There's the age now and then there's the age to come, and the turning point between the two happens with the judgment, and you can see that even in this imagery. Harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers, the harvesters, are angels. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't do, but we're going to talk about it here in a little bit. He doesn't describe who, he doesn't describe who the slaves or the servants are that have this big old conversation in the parable. So if you go back to the parable, there's kind of this large section in the middle where um, once the, the servants, the slaves of the master of the house recognize, hey, this isn't, this isn't wheat, this is Darnell, there's a big old conversation of, hey, what do we do with this? We got to get rid of the Darnell. He doesn't describe who the slaves or the servants are at all. 
Now, I don't think because of how much time Jesus spent on that, that that's unimportant, but I think he's given enough correspondences for us to fill in the blank. But let's see a little bit more to his explanation. Verse 40. So what did Jesus just do? He gave, he gave all these correspondences of actors, right? He gave all these correspondences of actors in this play, so to speak. And now he talks about the situation. And what does he focus on? He focuses on the end of the parable. Verse 40. Just as the Darnell are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And that phrase, remember, just means listen up, because what I just said is very important, and you might miss some things unless you're listening very, very attentively. First, one, uh, what else can we see here? Well, remember we said if, if Jesus is the sower, the guy who went out and sowed good seed, he started uh, the citizenry of the kingdom, so to speak, well, notice that the parable encompasses not only Jesus, the time of Jesus' ministry, but also to the time of the end of the age. So this situation and circumstance that is described in the parable, it's the time we're in too, right? It's all the time until the coming judgment. We can see here that Jesus focuses on that judgment. And what is he doing? He, at the judgment, he sends forth the angels who are the reapers. They gather out of his kingdom. Now, notice whose kingdom is it? It's the son of man's kingdom. All causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So these Darnell, these, uh, even things that can look an awful lot like the real thing, people that can look an awful lot like real disciples, but are false, their causes of sin or, uh, you know, temptations they might bring, and all lawbreakers, at the end of the age, he's going to gather them out. Gather them out of what? Out of the world. Because the scope of the Son of Man's kingdom is the world. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you're know your Bible a little bit, uh, you might say, hey, that kind of sounds familiar. The fiery furnace idea, that sounds really familiar. And if you also recognize that Matthew and Jesus bank on Daniel quite a bit, then you might be reminded of Daniel 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got thrown into a fiery furnace. And you're like, why in the world? And in fact, it's very, very clear in the original that the language is very, very similar. And there's an intentional link. Now, why would that be? Because in Daniel, you've got the king of kings, so to speak, Nebuchadnezzar. At the time, he's the head honcho. He's the one that has uh, the, kind of the dominion of the known world. And what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, they wouldn't worship him. They wouldn't submit to his rule. And so he gave a decree that they should be thrown into this fiery furnace. So you had Nebuchadnezzar, a king, responding to false or uh, responding to 
these people not giving worship, not giving obedience, not giving submission, and he throws them in the fiery furnace. And obviously he was on the wrong side because God rescues those men. But why is Jesus alluding to that imagery here? It's because it's analogous to what will happen at the judgment. Only this time it will be the true king of kings who will address people who are worshiping false gods, they're giving false worship. That's another way to describe sin is ultimately you're worshiping something else. Another way to describe sin is that you're not submitting to the true ruler. And what is the right sentence for that? Because sin is not merely a naughty thing. It is a personal slap in the face of an infinitely holy and worthy God, the one who has the right of all kingship, all worship, all submission, all love with heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the proper sentence for such an infinite offense? Well, it is into, and Jesus, Jesus uses the imagery of Daniel 3, into a fiery furnace. And this time there's no rescue. There's only weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because this time, unlike what happened in Daniel 3, this is the right sentence because these folks are on the wrong side of history. And then you also see another imagery from Daniel, uh, Daniel, verse 43. Then the righteous, so these are also the sons of the kingdom, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice who's the kingdom this time. It's the fathers, isn't it? So before it was the kingdom of the son of man. Now it's the kingdom of the fathers. Or is Jesus saying, well, there's two different kingdoms? No, because God's plan has always been to rule as God through a human king. And that is exactly what is happening. That is what is exactly what will happen at the end of time. It's Jesus' kingdom, and it's the Father's kingdom. Father rules through his chosen king, the Son of Man, the God-man at the end of time. What about, what about, so we see this imagery, we see what Jesus is focusing on, what about that conversation in the original parable? What about that conversation between the slaves, the servants of the master of the house, when they recognize, hey, we got Darnell uh, in the midst of our wheat. What, what about that cold conversation? Like I said, I think it's important because Jesus spends a bunch of time on it. Well, for, let's see if we can fill in the blanks. I think Jesus has given us enough to fill in the blank here. Who has the authority to go out and gather wheat and darnell the angels do so like we said when we were talking about the imagery of the parable last week uh the slaves the the servants of the master of the house are probably among the reapers although uh you might hire on a few extra hands during the harvest because it gets busy but essentially that situation is set up in such a way that uh, this issue of mixture gets addressed. You see, the Old Testament, if you were to read the Old Testament, this conception of the kingdom, the idea was the judgment's coming, the kingdom's coming, all causes of sin are out, there's no mixture. But Jesus is speaking in such a way as if, yeah, well, but there's this time where there is mixture. There is mixture. There's the mixture of the citizens of the kingdom living side by side, and they might even look very, very similar to the citizens of Satan's kingdom. 
And in the disciples' minds, or even reading the Old Testament, it's like, wait a minute, I thought if the kingdom's coming, I thought if the kingdom's coming, if the king is here and he's initiating his kingdom, which is what Jesus as the Son of Man is doing, in a sense, at least gathering its citizenry, why is there this mixture? And he kind of addresses that with that conversation uh, that seems like it, it's a, uh, at least a, a conversation that Jesus portrays is between him and those who have the authority to gather wheat and weeds, the angels. And it's like, well, can't we, shouldn't, we, shouldn't we gather these look-alike weeds out now? Shouldn't we get rid of the evil now? Really, that's the question. Shouldn't we just get rid of the evil now? Why, why is it sticking around? And notice in the parable, the master says, no, we're going to wait not for the sake of the weeds or the darnel, but for the sake of the wheat. The idea is, well, what would that correspond to in reality? Well, let's put it this way. The angels know who's on what side. And they could go out and start, well, let's get rid of the evil ones. Let's just pluck them out of the world right now. Well, imagine what that would look like and imagine how that could, if it was allowed to happen, destroy the faith of those who are actually Jesus' people. So what's he going to do? He's going to wait. He's going to let the citizens of Satan's kingdom and the citizens of his kingdom coincide, even mix. They might even look very similar in some circumstances until the wheat matures to its fullest extent, till every citizen that can be gathered, would be gathered, right? That's the whole scheme. Like the, the, the enemy goes out to diminish this guy's harvest. And the best course of action was to wait to the end until every wheat that can be gathered will be gathered, and then the harvest will come. And then, and only then, will the separation of evil from the righteous will happen. Now, what do we learn from this? What is Jesus supposed to be teaching with this? Well, remember, there's two audiences. There's the crowds that just heard the imagery, and then there's the disciples who got the interpretation. So let's think of the crowds. What are the crowds supposed to hear? Well, they're supposed to hear this, and they're probably, there's enough imagery there that they might get thinking, huh, weeds, wheat, the weeds get burned up at this harvest. And if they, God opened their eyes, and they started thinking about it, and they repented and came to, maybe they even come to Jesus and say, hey, I've I have some questions about this. What are they supposed to get? They're supposed to ask the question, where am I at? Who am I? Am I a weed? Or am I a, am I a Darnell? Am I a lookalike weed? Or am I the wheat? And if they thought about that and that irritated them enough, it quite possibly could drive them to repentance and to coming from switching from the crowds to the disciples. So, that's for the crowds. What about for the disciples? Well, the disciples have already repented and entrusted themselves to Christ, but, and they're following him as king, but they're expecting, hey, the kingdom's going to come right now. It's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. All that evil's going to go away. And Jesus is like, no, 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 not yet. Because Israel rejected me, that's not going to happen yet. The age that you're going to live in is an age of mixture. You're going to live side by side with causes of evil and lawbreakers until the end. So you need to understand that. You need to be aware of that. And you need to wait and be patient 
and trusts and look forward to the harvest. So we think about applications for us. The question first is, are you a citizen of Christ's kingdom or are you a citizen of Satan's counterfeit kingdom? The Darnell looks an awful lot like the wheat. Could be that you're here and you're tagging along and you like what you hear, but you haven't repented. Let's talk about repentance again. We talk about, we couch it in terms of allegiance. Why is that? Because sin ultimately comes back to what happened in the garden of rebellion, of I want to live life on my terms. That's all that rebellion takes. That's the heart of sin. And everyone starts out that way. Um, to borrow Jesus' imagery and shift it for a second, everyone starts out as Darnell. That's the natural, uh, that's the natural state. But what does repentance do? Repentance is laying down arms. It's surrendering and saying, no, God designed me to submit to him as king, to listen to him, to worship him, to have my life be all about him in every aspect and I'm, I'm, I'm laying down arms. I'm turning my allegiance from sin and from self. And the inseparable part to that is faith, of entrusting yourself and saying, I am a great sinner. I have committed grand treason against the king of the universe, and I deserve weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what we all deserve. We all deserve that, weeping and gnashing of teeth, because we have offended an infinitely holy God. And yet... As even Matthew set the tone at the beginning, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The king came to die for his people in their place to rescue them from weeping and gnashing of teeth so that they could enjoy that last statement in verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's imagery from Daniel 12, which is presented after the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the righteous will enjoy eternal bliss, living in the kingdom that God has designed from all eternity, enjoying the king for all eternity, and that through faith in Christ, you can enjoy that. A judgment is coming. It will come. So the question, first and foremost, are you a citizen of Christ's kingdom? Have you repented and placed your faith in Christ, or are you a counterfeit? Are you a Darnell? The dividing line is your response to Jesus and his message. For those who are kingdom citizens, first you have to recognize we deserve weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like you hear that statement of, oh good, God's going to gather out of the world. The Son of Man is going to gather out of the world all causes of sin and evildoers. Those bad people out there are finally going to get dealt with. You know, the, the bad situations in the world, and we're all familiar with them, that's going to get taken care of. Well, yeah, that's true, and that is joy for disciples of Jesus, but only because... Jesus died in your place because Jesus forgave your every sin and blasphemy so that you wouldn't have to endure, so you wouldn't be gathered out and placed into the fiery furnace. You have to recognize that before you rejoice. The only reason you can rejoice that, yes, we can be patient, we can trust, thing, Jesus will come as ultimate king and his kingdom is going to be wonderful and we're going to be there only because Jesus rescued us out of the fiery furnace. So we can be patient, we can trust, we can live in this time understanding, yes, there's mixture with even lookalikes, false professors, 
We live in a world of sin and lawbreakers and causes to sin. We do live there, but what's the call for disciples? You've been rescued, so rejoice and be patient and trust for the reality that Christ has called you to. So that's the parable of the Darnell. What about, we said, I promised that like once you get the parable of the Darnell, then you get the parable of the mustard grain and the parable of the leaven. So let's back up. Let's back up to verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven, and again, the kingdom of heaven, it's the kingdom coming from heavens. Remember Daniel 2, that stone cut out by no human hand coming and smashing all of the empires of the world and growing, growing into a mountain that's going to fill the earth. That's the imagery of the kingdom in Daniel 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. We said that seed is less than a millimeter in diameter. You put it in the ground as a farmer, it's like you're not going to see it again, even if you wanted to. It's covered up by this field. But what's the similar imagery? We have a sower, we have sowing seed in a field. So if we fill in the blanks, the field is the world again. The sower is the son of man. Now, why is there one seed? Well, we said he kind of collapsed all of the multiple seeds down into one. Why is that? And it's an itty-bitty seed. Because it represents, like the seed in the last parable, the citizens of the kingdom. It represents the disciples. You To look at Jesus and his disciples at this point in his ministry, it's underwhelming. It's not that impressive. It's itty-bitty. And by the end of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's still itty-bitty. Planted in Palestine in a corner of the world... kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree, which is unexpected, like mustard trees don't usually get this big, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In that language, the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches, that's, that has an Old Testament pedigree, because if you were to look at, as I put the references in your notes, if you were to look at Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24, you would find that there God takes a little sprig off the top of a tree and he plants it and it's really small and then it grows into this giant tree and it represents the Davidic king and his kingdom. And then it talks about birds coming and nesting in the branches because all of the, the birds represent the nations. The nations of the world will shelter ultimately in the Davidic kingdom that tree doesn't get cut down, but if you were to go to Ezekiel 31, 1 through 14, there you would see that Assyria, one of these big old empires that's got a lot of nations in its sway, is compared to a tree, and these birds of the air come into the branches. But because Assyria was proud, the tree gets cut down. And then if you were to go to Daniel 4, you would find Nebuchadnezzar, who's the head honcho then of Babylon, and you've, he. He's got all of these nations under his sway with the bir like, like birds of the air coming and nesting in his branches, and yet because of pride, it gets cut down. But here, we have a mustard tree that doesn't look impressive at the start, but by the end, this is the ultimate kingdom that will encompass all the nations of the world, and it will not be cut down because it is led by the ultimate king, King Jesus. Looks really small right now. Looks really unimpressive. This, you know, a few disciples and this kind of wandering teacher that does some miracles. That's cool, but looks really small. But 
it's going to grow to encompass the whole world. Just like that mountain in Daniel 2, what did that stone do? It came and hit the statue, destroyed all the other kingdoms of the world, and it grew into a mountain that filled the earth. What's the message? Well, again, there's a message for the crowds, and there's a message for the disciples. For the crowds, if they were able to discern and repent and come to at least some knowledge of this imagery, are you looking at, are you dissuaded by the small beginnings, right? This doesn't look like much, Jesus and his disciples, the message they're proclaiming doesn't look like the kingdom we were expecting. But if you only focus on that, you're going to miss it, give it time, and more and more people will heed this message, become citizens of the kingdom. And the question is, are you going to miss it because you're dissuaded by the smallness of the appearances now? Okay, what about the disciples? Well, again, they're all looking around, staring at each other like, this doesn't look very impressive. Wait for it. Wait for Jesus to gather more disciples and through his disciples to gather more disciples and it will turn into the citizenry that will be part of the Davidic dynasty that will encompass the world. Patience for the disciples. Wait for it. Be patient. Wait for the end. What about the leaven? Verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid or concealed in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And we said, this is kind of funny because, uh, remember, the leaven idea is like sourdough. So you take some of your starter and you put it in this batch of dough. But this is a lot of dough. This is like 50 to 60 pounds of bread dough, right? It's enough bread to, fill, or to, to feed probably 100 or more people. But this action of the woman concealing this starter in this big old batch of dough, like you can seal it in there, you're not finding it in. Once you put it in there, you can't pull it back out. That's like the sower sowing a seed in the field. So if we fill in the blanks, the woman in this case represents Jesus. And the leaven, the little batch of starter, again, what did the seeds, the good seed in the field represent? What did the mustard seed represent? It represented the disciples. And we're folding that into a bunch, a huge mass representing, in the, the last couple cases, the field was the world, so we would expect that the, this big mass of dough is also representing the world. But here, unlike the others, the emphasis is potency and permeation. Yes, it's relatively small, this little batch of leaven that's going into this big uh, batch of dough. So that's part of it, but it's more about potency and permeation. Eventually, without fail, that leavening process will go throughout the whole dough and cause its effect. So similarly, and we even see Jesus later in Matthew 16 liken leaven to teaching, to the message. It's not just about the disciples. It's about the disciples' message, the message that they're proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's the message of the gospel. And Jesus likens later the, the idea of leaven to teaching. And so this idea of 
the message is going to permeate. Not just the disciples, but the, disciple, the message the disciples are carrying are eventually, without fail, going to permeate the world until the time of the end. Again, there's a message for the crowds and there's a message for the disciples. For the crowds, it's kind of that idea of this doesn't look like much. This message doesn't look like much. This the idea of repentance and faith. What about, what about this grand kingdom? What about all the pomp and circumstance? What about all these great things? What about cleansing out evil? Well, this gospel of the kingdom stuff doesn't look that important. But if you think that way, you're going to be on the wrong side of history because this message is what will permeate the world, which will gather kingdom citizens until the end, until all of the citizens, all of the wheat that Jesus wants to gather will be gathered. For the disciples, it's again, the message is essentially patience and faithfulness. They're not just the disciples, they have a message to proclaim, the gospel of the king. And that doesn't cease, even though Jesus has been rejected by Israel, that doesn't cease. That message of repentance and faith continues, and that's how Jesus gathers more kingdom citizens through that message. That's the only way that more Come. And then the pomp and the circumstance of the kingdom will come in the end, but we wait and be patient until then. The message of the kingdom will do its work eventually. Or as Paul would say, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel doesn't look all that impressive, does it? We say it over and over again. Why do we say it so many times? Because we need it not only as an initial entryway into to be citizens of Christ's kingdom, but also we need to keep reminding ourselves of it because that is how Christ is gathering kingdom citizens in the world. The people and the message will permeate the world. It has. You think historically. Think historically how these parables have come true. Yes, there's a lot of Darnell out there. There's a lot that goes under the name of Christianity that's not genuine. However, there, uh, Christ's message has permeated much of the world. Not all of it yet. There's still much work to be done. But now we got people not just from Palestine, but people in Europe, in Africa, in South America, in North America, in Asia, Papua New Guinea, all sorts of places. Give it time. Be patient and trust. Trust in Jesus' methods, just trust in Jesus' timing. And if you're not one of Jesus' citizens, the question to you is this, will you be on the right side of history? Because this is all about history. This is all about the future. And if we understand the future rightly, church doesn't look impressive right now. The disciples don't look impressive right now. They're just these people that proclaim this message and they've got their foibles and all of that. It doesn't look that impressive, but the question is, are you going to be on the right side of history? Because Jesus tells you what the right side of history looks like. Understand that the, the kingdom coming from heaven will start in a small way, gradually growing to permeate the world until its final establishment. Let's pray. Jesus, you do surprising things, things that we would not expect, things that look foolish from a human perspective, and yet that foolishness is the very power of God. So, Lord, we pray that we would trust you. We pray that we would trust um, in the message you have given us to proclaim. 
We pray that you would gather more kingdom citizens, that you would grow the mustard tree, that you would allow the leaven to permeate further, that you would allow more wheat to be discovered and to mature. Lord, we do ask for more people. We ask for people in our community. We ask for those in Hood River, in the Gorge, in the Dalles. Lord, we ask for more souls, and we trust in the power of the message empowered by you, the Spirit empowering that message. So give us boldness to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Help us to be lights and salts, light and salt to the world, to speak of you, to live in kingdom righteousness, to, to be emissaries, to be an embassy of your future kingdom. People might see and repent, Lord, we ask for that. Give us patience, give us trust, and help us not to be dissuaded by mixture with evil during this time. Help us not to be dissuaded by seeming smallness, seeming impotency, but Lord, help us to trust what you are doing and help us to be faithful now. Lord, we ask these things and we pray them in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.